Welcome to the L2 Podcast, a weekly recording of the gathering at L2 Church in Denver, Colorado. Our current series is entitled Defragmented. Because the Bible can feel like a bunch of disconnected parts with no overarching purpose or meaning, our own lives can feel similar. In this series, we are seeking to show how piecing back together the overarching narrative of Scripture can help us find our context within the Bible story. Luke 4, 16-21 And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. Welcome to church this morning. Made it out on a dreary afternoon on a long holiday weekend. So thanks for coming out. I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving and a uh, um, non-violent Black Friday. Um, uh, Looks like you all made it through, so thanks for coming. Uh, So here we are at week five in our series, Defragmented. And the position of this series, so we're asking this particular question, does your faith cause you to perceive an overarching purpose in your life that you're making progress towards? That is, can, does your faith inform your life in such a way that you see, I have a purpose, my life has a meaning and a purpose, and I'm making progress towards it? Without a purpose, you can't make progress. And without that sense of progress, you can't really experience that sense of fulfillment that I think we're all looking for in our lives. In this series, we're exploring how breaking up the Bible into disjointed, uh, disjointed little stories or just moralistic fairy tales in, in doing that, which we so commonly do, we, we've missed the overarching narrative of Scripture. We've missed, we've missed the Genesis to Revelation overarching story of the Bible. So in this series, what we're looking to do is defragment the Bible, put the overarching story back together. That way we can see it as a collective whole and then see how our lives fit into that context. When we see the context of our lives, that informs our purpose. And we understand why we're here in this place, in this present moment, why our, the boundaries of our lives have been set such as they are, and how that context fits, in, fits into the grander context of the overarching story of the Bible. The Bible, when it is broken up into these moralistic fairy tales, uh, it can seem like, <laughs> that's kind of a loaded term, but it, when it's broken up into these moralistic stories, it can seem... Uh, at best, like, like quaint, helpful, moral lessons. But at worst, turning to the Bible to learn our context can actually seem regressive in our modern culture. It can seem like we're actually moving away from the progress that the rest of society seems to be making. 
But in this series, we hope to demonstrate that that's not the case. We're, we're learning our true context, our true meaning, our true purpose by seeing it in the overarching narrative of the Bible. So here we are, we're at week five, and that means that we've seen the creation story where we started and we saw that the world was created good, and then we saw the fall, how by Adam's sin, the world was infected and twisted with this futility, this meaninglessness. The purpose of the world in arcing towards the glory of God is now we've twisted as humans back in on ourselves, trying to make it arc towards our own glory. And then the center was disjointed. And now we feel the sense of meaninglessness in everything that we do. So that even our creation and even our drawing out of the development that's in the world always seems to be this double-edged sword. Our civilizations that, that we create make us feel so secure while they oppress so many others. The technology that we've made that unites us, you know, one person can talk to another person on the other side of the world, also seems to isolate us right next to each other. So this positive development that we draw out of the world, drawing on its good creation, now with sin always seems to be twisted. And any sort of why question, why are we doing this? Why are we developing? Why am I working? Why, why am I putting so much effort into these relationships? When you get to the bottom of these why questions, it seems like we don't have any sort of helpful answer because of the twist of sin in the world. So we've seen the creation, we've seen what the fall did to the creation. Then we saw that after the fall, God did not abandon the world. He did not destroy it or leave it, but in fact, he recommitted to it. By establishing a covenant with a small group of people, we saw how God initiated immediately the redemption that he is looking to work into the world. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 and 8, uh, Russ touched on this. It says, it, God speaking about Israel, it says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. So we're seeing this love that motivated God to initiate his redemption has been working in the world throughout all of history. He's continually working this out in the world. And we saw how Russ explained to us how he set his love on this one nation of Israel, and he guided this nation through history, promising that through it the whole world might be redeemed. And then last week, Russ had the unfortunate task of preaching on a text that didn't exist. It's not in the Bible. He preached on the intertestamental period, so the time between the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament. Uh, that was probably a message that you hadn't heard before. They aren't, uh, Muzak isn't pumping songs about the intertestamental period through big box stores on Black Friday, typically. I don't know where you shop. Maybe Hobby Lobby. <laughs> but they kind of have that bent. Um, so it, it, you probably hadn't heard that message before of how God, even in his silence, was setting the stage, guiding the rise and decline of empires so that the stage would be perfectly set for the person we're talking about today to arrive, for Jesus' arrival, for God himself to break into the scene of world history. Last week's message you probably hadn't heard. This week's message on the gospel, on Jesus, 
you probably have heard. I was with my family all week, and they're like, so James, what are you preaching on this week? And I was like, Jesus. And they're like, <laughs> ah, what a riot, Christian preacher, Jesus. Yeah, but for real, we are actually preaching on Jesus this week. This week is the climactic moment. Uh, I had a hand in choosing which sermons I got to preach in the series, so I chose Jesus. Uh, so that's who we're talking about this week. This message you may have probably heard before in some sort of familiar way. Christianity is the folk religion of the West. It informs our culture. It's the water we swim in as fish, and it can be hard to recognize what's our culture and what's Christianity. And it can be hard to see the gospel with fresh eyes. I say that the gospel in our culture is like Top Gun. Even if you haven't seen it from start to finish, you've caught it enough times on TNT to be able to piece it together. You pretty much know the story, even if you haven't experienced it from start to finish. But this week, I'm hoping that by putting the gospel into its rightful biblical context, seeing it in its place in redemptive history, seeing how Jesus comes into the stage that, he, that God set on world history, uh, that we can see the gospel with fresh eyes, that we can see how it applies to us more and speaks more directly to us in our contemporary context today. <clears throat> so, uh, Paul, when he was writing to the Romans, <clears throat> he said, uh, he begins his letter in chapter 1, verses 15 to 16. He says, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul is writing a letter to a group of Christians, that is, people who know and believe the gospel. And he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also. So there's something in this gospel that it is that he would call it the very power of God. And I hope that we can see that freshly in sort of a new way, or in a way that is particularly meaningful for the place that you find yourself in today. So we're going to look at two things, just two points. First off, we're going to look at the expectation of Jesus. That is, what were the first century Jews expecting the Messiah to be? And then in that, we're going to see how our expectations fit theirs so well. And our expectations of Jesus can so easily cause us to miss the reality of Jesus. Because we think we know the story so well, because we know Goose dies, right? <laughs> that didn't land like I thought it would. Because, uh, see you guys, um, because, because we know the story so well, uh, it can be hard to hear freshly. And that's because of our particular expectations that we have of Jesus. So after we see the expectations, we're going to look at the reality of Jesus. We're going to see who he really was, what he actually came to do, and what he really accomplished. So first of all, the expectation. The section that we read from, uh, that Daniel read from for us, that was in Luke 4. And just before that passage, Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, and he's tempted directly by Satan. 
Uh, that's recorded in the first part of Luke 4. So it says, uh, the section I pulled out so we can get a taste of it is Luke 4, 5 through 8. It says, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So last week, Russ described for us the experience, the expectation that had developed amongst the first century Jews. They were at this fever pitch waiting for the Messiah because of a particular interpretation of Daniel 2, which allowed them to read the rise and fall of empires and say, we are at the moment where finally the Messiah is going to go in and totally, completely, and triumphantly set us free from our Roman captors. That was the expectation of the Messiah. So what we see is Jesus begins his ministry with this sort of expectation presented to him in a pretty unique way, presented to him by the express temptation of Satan. The express temptations of Satan mirror this way, in what, mirror the expectations that were existing in the culture for what Jesus should do, how he should accomplish redemption at that time. So there were three temptations. The first is he was turn a stone to bread. Satan says, turn this stone to bread, because Jesus had been fasting for like 40 days, so he was hungry. And Satan says, just turn this stone to bread. And he doesn't. And then the next is the one that we read, where Satan offers him the glory of all the kingdoms of the world, if only he would bow down and worship him, and he doesn't. And then finally, he, Satan takes him to the top of the temple, and he says, throw yourself off, and then let the angels miraculously save you. Uh, and he doesn't. In their book, The Drama of Scripture, Craig Bartholomew and Michael Goheen, they sum up the temptations of Jesus in uh, these three ways. He says, Satan shows us three different paths he might take as the Messiah. Excuse me, Satan shows Jesus three different paths he might take as the Messiah. We confer to them as, one, the way of the populist. Two, the way of the wonder worker. And three, the way of the violent revolutionary. So the way of the populist would have allowed Jesus to immediately appeal to the fundamental needs of the Jewish people. It would have allowed him to turn this stone into bread, create exactly what their needs were, and just give it to them, and win the people in that way. We start to see it where the crowds gather around Jesus later in his ministry because he had been feeding them. And he, said, and he sees they're just here for the food. When any hardship comes, those crowds, they scatter. So you could have taken the way of the populist, appealing to just providing them exactly what they wanted. He could have taken the way of the wonder worker, which would have allowed him to capture the imaginations of the people, such that he would be the one who could come in and totally and easily, triumphantly even, remove any of the hardships that they were facing, any of the difficulties of the occupation that they had, because he could just perform the miracle. He could do the wonder. He could make it happen. He could cheat death. And by cheating death, for all of the people of Israel, they could be redeemed. And third, it's that of the violent revolutionary. 
So in this way, he would have been able to ensure the establishment of a physical, political empire. The worldly glory of all the kingdoms of the world could be Israel's in the same way that it was currently, at that time, Rome's glory. And yet, Jesus doesn't do it that way either. Immediately after facing Satan's temptation in the wilderness, Jesus comes back to his hometown to uh, begin his ministry. But uh, what, we see, what we see in the way that Jesus avoids these temptations is he's demonstrating how the kingdom will actually be brought into the world. All of the ways that we actually miss who Jesus is. See, because the kingdom would not be brought in in abundance, but in sacrifice. The kingdom would not be brought in by a miraculous avoidance of death, but in an execution. And not as a violent revolutionary, but as a humble servant. I'm going to move this here. That's way better. So, we see the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, but this, this ought to sound familiar. The story of somebody being in the wilderness and being tempted directly, expressly by Satan. This is the way that our story began with the fall. We see Adam in the garden tempted by Satan. And Adam, in the midst of his temptation, he caves, he bows to Satan. He turns in on himself and chooses his own glory rather than God's glory. And in that, all of our expectations have been twisted. Us in the lineage of Adam have had all of our expectations, our understandings of what it means to be powerful, of what it means to be glorious, of what it means to be just. Those have all been tainted and twisted in our own hearts. And Jesus, by his denial of all of Satan's temptations, what we're seeing is these, these expectations of ours are being set right. They're being corrected. Adam's sin in the garden is being undone by Jesus's righteousness in the wilderness. Adam's bowing to Satan is being undone by Jesus's refusal to bow to Satan. Adam's man-centeredness undone by Jesus's God-centeredness. So these expectations that we have from Adam of who we expect Jesus to be, the expectations that the Jewish people had then and ours today are, they, they ought to be really familiar. They're in us, the same sort of expectation for how we miss Jesus. Because we expect Jesus to be the progressive populist who only affirms us, who is with us in this constant march towards uh, a more progressive future. And yet, and yet when we see him call us to holiness, we think, oh, that must not have been Jesus. Jesus is the progressive populist. When he, calls us to, when he calls us to live in this particular holiness that feels like a limiting of my freedom, we avoid him like he's calling us to slavery, when the reality is he's calling us to freedom. We, see, we expect Jesus to be the wonder worker that allows us to miraculously avoid all the pain and suffering of our lives. So that once we invite Jesus into our lives, and if we just obey him in the proper way, then he will be indebted to us, and he will work magical wonders in our lives so that there's no pain and suffering in them anymore. And then when he leads us into paths of pain and suffering, we think, that wasn't Jesus. Jesus is the wonder worker who takes this away. Jesus isn't the one that leads me into it. We miss him 
because we're thinking of him progressively. We miss him because we are thinking of him as the wonder worker. We miss him because we're thinking of him as the triumphalist revolutionary so that we expect God to be the one fighting against our enemies. You know, it, it, here's a metaphor that we use, culture war. We expect Jesus to be warring against another aspect of our culture, and he's on our side to defeat the enemy. But then when we see him offering mercy to those that we would consider our enemies, offering justice to those that are oppressed, when we see him helping those that don't and can't help themselves, then that triumphalist revolutionary picture doesn't fit him anymore, and we think that must not be Jesus. You see, we miss Jesus all over the place because of our own expectations. And these expectations aren't different from the ones that they had of Jesus originally. We miss Jesus liberally because he calls us to holiness. We miss him prosperously because he calls us to sacrifice. And we miss him conservatively because he calls us to mercy. You're somewhere on that spectrum maybe a lot of different places on that spectrum multiple times a day. But the reality is that our expectations of who we want Jesus to be are plugging Jesus into the narratives of our own culture cause us to miss who he really is. We're looking for a redemption that perfectly fits the culture we want to be a part of. We aren't looking for the actual real redemption that he offers. So we miss him. We don't see him clearly. So then... After facing and overcoming these temptations, after being tempted to just plug his redemption into the cultural norms of his day that are very similar to the cultural norms of our day, Jesus denies that temptation, and he brings redemption in a much more unexpected, much more incredible way that it, it can be more challenging and, and harder to deal with. So, after facing this temptation, Jesus goes back from the wilderness to his hometown of Nazareth, and it's there that he gets the Isaiah scroll. And uh, he goes into the synagogue, gets the Isaiah scroll, and he sits down, uh, excuse me, he, he reads from the Isaiah scroll, and he turns to this section, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So now we are looking at the reality of Jesus. Who was this Jesus? What redemption did he actually come to bring into the world? So in this section, we can see two things. First, we'll see Jesus' identity, and then we'll see the good news that Jesus has to bring. So first, Jesus' identity. So he announces that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. He is the anointed, the holy one 
of God. And he says that this scripture has now been fulfilled in your hearing it. This prophecy from Isaiah written 700 years before, now that I've read it and you've heard it, it's been fulfilled. It's complete in me. I am the one that the scriptures were pointing to. I am the one that all of your hopes and all of your history was arcing towards. I am the wonderful counselor. I am the mighty God. I'm the one who's here to redeem you. This is an outrageous claim to make. To sit down, to read a, to read a section of the Bible, to sit down and say, that's me. I'm here. I made it. That's, that scripture's fulfilled now. Want me to read another one? I could fulfill it now too. We could tick off a couple of these. It's an unbelievable thing to say. In fact, in verse 22 afterwards, Luke records that the crowd is sort of, they're sort of in wonder and amazement. And then some of the crowd, they're saying, isn't this Joseph's son? Is not this Joseph's son, the carpenter's son? Like, remember, we all grew up around him. He's been here, we've known him the whole time. This is Nazareth. They probably wouldn't have to explain that much to each other. But they would know, they would recognize that it, there's this huge question of like, this is the Holy One of God, this is the Anointed One, the one whom the Holy Spirit is on, and yet he's just here, sitting down in the flesh, the carpenter's son, not even like the scribe's son or the mayor's son, I don't know if they had mayors, but just the carpenter's son, the total sum dude. That's the tension that always exists in Jesus. This is the mystery, the incredible nature of the incarnation, is that God, God, yes, him, that God, became a man, a human, and dwelt among us. He was the carpenter's son. The incarnation is this incredible mystery. J.I. Packer says it like this. He says, God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. There, there are probably three great mysteries in Christianity at the heart of our religion. Three great mysteries. First is the Trinity. How can there be a God who is completely one and yet exists in three persons? How can there be that type of unity in diversity. The third is our union with Christ, but the, the second is the incarnation. How can Jesus be completely God and completely man? How could it possibly be that God became a man? How could that be? What would happen to the world if something like that happened? How would that shift the cosmos if God became a man, if God became a human. All of the Superman movies are terrible. There, I've said it. 
The reason that all the Superman movies are terrible, amidst, and I like superhero movies. I really like superhero movies. Right, Megan? Yeah. Like, dark superhero movies are my love language. But, <laughs> super, but all the Superman movies are terrible, and the reason is, is because they always neglect the most important part of Superman. Superman is an alien from another planet who, who comes down to Earth, and he's an all-powerful man. If that happened in the world, if an alien came down to Earth as an all-powerful man, it would stop and restart the calendar. It would have the most radical implications for our humanity on Earth. We would, we, we would, it would be an existential breakdown for all of humanity. Who are we? What does this mean for us? Where do we fit in the world now? Instead, it's like, is he going to date that reporter? They miss the coolest questions that they could ask with that. But this, the incarnation, is so much more incredible, more magnificent, more terrific, more mind-crushingly full of wonder than, uh, than an all-powerful Superman alien. This is God became a man. God it, it surrendered his throne and came down as one of us to rescue us. Do you feel that wonder? Do you see that? Have you savored that lately? Have you considered the incarnation? If you, if you don't consider the incarnation, nothing else in Christianity will make sense. If you don't consider the, the heights of the throne that he left and then, the, and then living in the dirt that he came to, if you don't consider that, none of Christianity will make sense. So much more than... Superman. And it did. It stopped and restarted the calendar when it happened. All of time can now only be measured in a counting down towards the moment when Jesus arrives and then counting up in direct proportion to his kingdom spreading on the world. It happened. Jesus was the incarnate Son of God. God became a man. How did he rescue us? First, in humility, by becoming a man. Next, we see the good news. So he's the incarnate, the, incarnate, the anointed. The Spirit is upon him to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, liberty to those who are oppressed. Jesus does not come to merely provide a salve for the symptoms of the fall, but he comes to directly address the key issue of the fall. He comes to address our sin. Jesus doesn't come with a new bit of helpful advice of saying, you know, the problem was your desire. And so just don't desire, and then your problem will go away. No, he doesn't come to treat symptoms. Jesus comes to completely and actually effectively take care of the true problem in our creation. He comes to address the sin, the sin that's in us. Continuing in Luke 4, we see this hint of what's to come. Right afterwards, right after he's preaching and he says, the scripture's been filled in my hearing, and then he says a little bit that sort of ticks him off a little bit uh, about pretty much like, Remember how you killed the other prophets? Uh, it's probably going to be something like that. They don't like that, and they try and kill him. 
they are unsuccessful at that moment in the rest of Luke 4, but we know that ultimately what Jesus came to do, what his incarnation makes possible, is a death. Ultimately, Jesus came to bear a death, to take on his humanity a death, a punishment for the twist of sin that had infected creation, an undoing, a setting right of that joint by his death. So the poverty, the blindness, the captivity, the oppression that dominates the world and our lives, these are symptoms of the sin that's in our hearts. These are symptoms of the disordered affections that we have, where we've turned our search for glory in on ourselves to try and glorify ourselves rather than seeking the glory of the one who created us. And so the issue that must be dealt with is not only poverty, it is not only your poverty, but it's also your greed. The issues that must be dealt with are not only, this is going to be a powerful moment, it lost my spot, sorry. <laughs> the issues that need to be dealt with are not only your poverty, but it's also your grief. It's not only your being captive, it's you holding others captive. It's not only your blindness, but it's your active oppression of the truth. It's not only you being oppressed, but it's you oppressing others. You see, if God is going to address the true thing that has gone wrong in the world, then he needs to address the problem. And the problem is the sin that is in you, the sin that is in us. The problem is us. So how can a just God address not just the symptoms of the world's issues, but the world's issue, that it might be set right in a real way without destroying us? The heart of the problem. The only hope that we could have is that Jesus would take on that pain, take on that suffering on himself. The verses that Jesus read, read from the Isaiah scroll in 61, verses 1 and 2, it's the same person that's prophesied in Isaiah 53 that Zach read. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus, though sinless, bore our sins so that we, though sinful, might have his righteousness. So that the true problems in our hearts and therefore in the world might be actually made right. So that God might be just in punishing sin and he might be our justifier in making us righteous. Now, this idea that God had to punish Jesus in order to deal with sin, in order to set us free, it's not super popular right now. <laughs> uh, there's, it, there's aspects of Christianity, the deconstructionist aspects, the post-Christian aspects of Christianity that have, that have totally done away with this idea of Jesus having to bear the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to bear it. 
But in getting rid of that idea, you get rid of the heart of love in the way that we all most truly and most deeply experience it. All love is a substituting of yourself and your desires and your life for the desires and life of someone else. It's a substituting of your life for someone else. It's you saying, I will die so that you will live. That's the way that we experience all of love. That's the way you experience sticking around longer in a conversation you don't want to be a part of on Thanksgiving. You say, I'll give up this part of my life so that we can enjoy each other's company. It's always a substitution. All love is always a substitution. When you get rid of that, you miss what love really is. Sometimes we sing the song Rock of Ages. It says, uh, Rock of Ages cleft for me. Let the water and the blood from the wounded side which flowed be for sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. That is what Jesus' death and resurrection has done for us. It saved us from the wrath of God. And it's given to us his righteousness so that we might engage with and join God in the same way that Jesus does as a part of the Trinity. The things that we're touching on today are, they're too wonderful. We know in our hearts that love requires a substitution. So I'm going to take a little moment to pr- try and prove that more clearly. Uh, the two highest grossing movies of all time. Anyone know? Titanic and Avatar. Titanic and Avatar. The two highest grossing movies of all time are Titanic and Avatar. Nice. Uh, those are both directed by the same guy, James Cameron, which is insane. It's like 12 years apart. It's like, all right, I'm going to go make the most popular movie of all time. And then he woke up 12 years later and he was like, all right, I'm going to go make the most popular movie of all time again. Like, what, who is this guy? It's unbelievable. It's, yeah, it's incredible. Two most popular movies of all time made by the same guy. <laughs> he puts his pants on one leg at a time. The only difference is once his pants are on, he goes and he makes the most popular movies of all time. But... Uh, these two movies being the most popular ever, that can also say something not just about him, but about us, about humanity as a whole, about what, are, what do we want to see, what stories do we want to celebrate and spend money on and talk about and write reviews about. So uh, I'm going to rat James Cameron out a little bit. In terms of his stories, he just cheated. He just ripped off the best one. So here's the end of Titanic. Right? You remember the end of Titanic, Rose floating on the door, Jack in the water freezing. Some people say there was enough room on the door for both of them, but that, would, that ending wouldn't have worked. I'm about to explain why. It wouldn't have worked for two reasons. First, because they both would have been touching the water, then the point was for her to be above the water. That's where the hypothermia was. So we can just settle that. <laughs> the second is that he was, he had to substitute himself for her in order for the movie to have the impact that it needed. He had to die for her in order for us to truly get the love that they had, in order for us to understand it in a real way. He had to die. The last words that she says in that movie, 
He saved me in every way that a person can be saved. That's a total ripoff of this story. (laughs) Because we get that the most love we can feel, the most redemption we can feel, the salvation that we need will cost someone their life. Avatar. Avatar, this one's a little trickier, but Avatar, consider the story of Avatar and the way that it ends. Avatar is someone leaves their home, they identify with an oppressed people group, and then they represent them against their enemy, against their oppressor, ultimately losing his life, the life that he had had, and then being resurrected in a glorified body. Rip off of this story. <laughs> Completely. You know, it's like, maybe I can make the best movie in the world. Probably not. <laughs> I thought about it. But you see that these stories, this gospel story, the story of substitutionary atonement, the story of someone demonstrating their love by their sacrifice, our hearts are craving that so badly. And when we get it, it actually functionally changes you. But these stories, they're just pop culture. They're nothing. They pale in comparison to the reality of the crucifixion, the reality of the incarnation, the reality of the cross, the resurrection. This is, this is God becoming a human so that he might die. God might die so that you might live. There's nothing that compares to this. And it's even greater than these stories. Because it, consider Romans 5. Romans 5, it says, For, for while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Consider that. Jack loved Rose. She was pretty good. So for her, yeah, someone may dare even to die. But God died for us while we were his enemies. Rose was saying, I'll never let go. We were saying, crucify him, crucify him. And he still gave his life for us. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel is not about us understanding how great humans are, that we're so valuable that even God must die for us. The gospel is about us understanding that we aren't valuable, we're despicable, and yet God is so great and so glorious that he would even set his love on us. When you get that, it transforms you. Jesus came to die. The incarnate Son of God gave his life so that he might be the double cure. Save us from wrath, make us pure, inaugurate his kingdom into the world. In, this is a very cinematic sermon. In two, 2013, Best Picture was 12 Years a Slave. Uh, I recommend it. And uh, there's this moment where this, it, it's about this free black man who was captured in the north, and then he was sold into slavery in the south. And he's a slave for, you guessed it, 12 years. And so there's this uh, conversation that he's having at the end with this man who he thinks, he begins to hope, might be able to set him free. 
And he uses this phrase, and actually in the real, it's a true story, and in the, the real man's life, uh, he uses the same exact phrase that they borrowed for the movie. And he says, it would be an unspeakable happiness to see my wife and children again. Twelve years, separated from his family. And he says, it would be an unspeakable happiness. It's a phrase worth meditating on. Why is it unspeakable? It's an unspeakable happiness because even to say it is to let yourself hope in something so good. Something that would be so grand and magnificent if it were to be true, if it were to happen. That to let yourself hope in it and for that hope to be deferred would be soul-crushing. To speak that type of happiness is opening yourself up to the possibility of being crushed in a way that you might be destroyed. Our position with God is the same. To think that us as his enemies, that our only hope in the world would be that he would sacrifice himself for us, for us to hope that, for us to consider that, that the world might be set right, and that it, that would be the cost that must be paid it's an unspeakable happiness to even consider it. But that unspeakable happiness is sure for us. It's sure in Christ. It's true in Christ. We see it in the resurrection. That his resurrection may one day be our resurrection. Next week we're going to look at how this cultural bomb that goes off 2,000 years ago, how this story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, how it begins to change the world and bring in, usher in this kingdom, this new way of the world operating that will redeem the whole world. That's what we're going to start looking at next week. Uh, let's see if there's any questions. Regarding Goheen and Bartholomew's quote about Jesus as a populist, should we remove our religion from our political thought processes? Specifically, is it wholly inappropriate to shove Jesus into a modern political context? So, ultimately, this is a worldview question. Are our lives such that we can compartmentalize our religion from our political outlook? And the reality is, if this is a fundamental aspect of the world, and therefore of how you see the world, then those two can't be separated. But you'll see that if you're applying them correctly, they'll probably never seamlessly fit together. You'll probably always be doing the work of saying, I, I agree with this position here because of the way that the gospel informs my thinking, but I, but I can't agree with these the same uh, ideologies over here. If you find that your political ideology is never being critiqued by your religion, by your understanding of the gospel, then you probably aren't understanding either correctly. <laughs> you either aren't understanding your political ideology correctly or you aren't understanding the gospel correctly. So 
It, can they be separated? No. No more than anyone could separate their worldview. No more than an atheist could separate their worldview from how they ought to be thinking politically. Ought a Christian be able to separate their worldview from how they ought to be thinking politically? But it's a matter of which one's doing the informing. I think your Christianity ought to be informing your politics, not the other way around. Next. As a Christian who tries imperfectly, exclamation point, to seek after God and walk with him and sacrifice for him, love him, etc., etc., all the stuff, what is my responsibility to these other Christians who lead more worldly lives? Do I say anything to them? Am I remiss not to? When God commissions Ezekiel, he says, if someone is going to uh, if someone's like, oh, I'll paraphrase. Sorry, Russ would quote, I'll paraphrase. <laughs> if you're going, uh, he says, you, you need to be speaking out against these people. And if you speak out against them, and they still don't turn from their ways, their blood is on their head. But if you don't speak out against them, and they don't turn, then their blood is on your head. So here's the consideration. I think that to practically do that requires a lot of soul-searching and a lot of humility. Because if you're not speaking into their lives out of a love for them, then don't do it. If you're speaking into their lives to demonstrate your own holiness, then don't do it. And you can get to a point where you need to learn that about yourself, to be able to discern that. Uh, but I think that there's definitely a potential where it could be extremely unloving, even wrathful, to not speak out against uh, a way that they may be living that would be harmful. Uh, but I think it takes a lot of tact, wisdom. Any others? Oh, nice. All right. Let's pray. Uh, and then we'll take communion. Father, Praise you for the incredible nature of your incarnation, that you became a man and dwelt among us. The humiliation that you received because of us. And Lord, the fact of your love that, that transcended all of that, that we might be set free to know you and to live in true obedience to you, that the world might be completely redeemed, Lord. It's an unspeakable happiness to consider it, that these rights might be made wrong, excuse me, that these wrongs might be made right. Father, we praise you, we worship you, and we thank you. And we ask that the gospel, as the power of God for our salvation, might be at work in our hearts in the way we see the world and interact with others. Lord, we lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening.